managing a reservoir is a delicate balancing act. If you keep too much water, there may not be enough storage capacity when heavy rains hit, increasing the risk for catastrophic flooding. If you release too much water, there won't be enough to supply nearby residents who depend upon the reservoir for their survival. For decades, this process has been guided by water control manuals that dictate when to retain and when to release based on ground conditions. But in 2019, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers gave managers at Lake Mendocino in Northern California's wine country permission to deviate from those manuals. They would test a new methodology called Forecast Informed Reservoir Operations, or FIRO, that uses modern weather and stream flow forecasting, as well as watershed monitoring data to guide reservoir operations. Following a relatively wet year, the threat of potential floods loomed large during the fall of 2019 as the rainy winter season approached. However, FIRO's in-depth monitoring and forecasting capabilities advised Lake Mendocino's water managers to retain more water than they normally would have done. The forecasts were right, and 2020 turned out to be the third driest year over a 127-year period. Because more water was retained, the reservoir was able to supply an additional 22,000 homes with water that would have been prematurely discharged under the old system to guard against potential flooding that never occurred. Since 2014, a large group of experts from numerous federal, state, and local agencies and universities has been studying how weather forecasts can inform better water management decisions. Erdic has played a large role in these efforts, as has the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes, or CW3E, at the University of California, San Diego's Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Initial efforts focused on California and better understanding the atmospheric rivers that bring volatile swings in the region's rainfall totals. These long, narrow ribbons of concentrated moisture can dump 25 to 50% of California's annual precipitation in just a few events. They also cause 84% of flood damages in the western United States, inflicting more than $1 billion in annual damages. Better predicting these events would greatly improve water management decisions. Building on the successful pilot at Lake Mendocino, fear of viability is being studied at three additional reservoirs in California and one in Washington State. As it enters its next phase, researchers are studying how FIRO's methods can be applied at other locations across the United States. As climate changes threaten to bring more extreme floods and droughts, water managers must be as precise and efficient as possible in carefully balancing flood risk management, water supply, and environmental needs. Vero gives them the information they need to do that. I'm Chris Kiefer, and with Megan Holland, this is The Power of Erdic. Our guests today are Dr. Carrie Talbot and Dr. Marty Ralph. Carrie is Division Chief at Erdic's Coastal and Hydraulics Laboratory and FIRO Program Manager for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Marty is Director of the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes. We will talk with Carrie and Marty about how FIRO has improved water supply, reduced flood risk, and provided environmental benefits. Carrie, Marty, how are you all today? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing well, Chris. Very well, thanks. Carrie, let's start by introducing FIRO and explaining why this matters. How does FIRO enable better water management? 
Well, in the past uh, eight or so years that I've been working with very closely with the water management community within the Corps of Engineers, they've always told me that if you could tell them better what's going to happen in the weather, that they'd be able to manage water better. And so FIRO is truly the effort within the Corps to figure out how to safely and effectively incorporate forecasts into water management practice within the Corps of Engineers. So building right off of that, as you said, it's all about improving weather forecasting capabilities and giving water managers that data. And that's where the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes got involved. Marty, can you talk about why we needed to improve forecasting skill and the impact that that's having in terms of water management? Yeah, well, the type of storms that really matter for a reservoir operation situation like is important here in California is the big storms that come in and dump enough rain to create flooding. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also that's beneficial water supply. And we have huge variability from year to year in rain here. The big storms, and there's relatively few of them each year that make or break the water year. And predicting them better is really where the action is. And those big storms, of course, you're referring to atmospheric rivers. Can you talk a little bit about what an atmospheric river is and why it's so important to understand them and and what is also challenging about forecasting them? Yeah, so atmospheric rivers are uh, essentially rivers in the sky, but they're rivers of water vapor instead of liquid. They're a few hundred miles wide, a couple thousand miles long often. And if you slice across one hypothetically and measure how much water it's transporting horizontally as vapor, it's on an average AR is transporting about 25 Mississippi rivers worth of water. You know, the amount of water the Mississippi is discharging into the Gulf of Mexico. So they are really the rainmakers for the West Coast of U.S., West Coast of Europe, West Coast of South America, et cetera. And uh, we have learned about them over the last 20 or 30 years. And early studies in the 1990s helped coin the term and identify the concept. And then in the late 1990s, when I got involved, it had sort of faded away as a topic. There'd been some resistance to it, which happens in scientific arenas for new topics that are sometimes disruptive of old thinking. And in this case, it helped that we had special new satellite data that showed water vapor in the atmosphere over the oceans. It revealed these long, narrow ribbons of water vapor. And uh, I led a program to uh, go sample the storms offshore of California in 1998 with aircraft, uh, the Hurricane Hunter aircraft. And we used them for the research in the winter on these type of storms. And at that point, I didn't even know the atmospheric river concept. And it was a couple of years later when I discovered that earlier literature, the light bulb went off. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that there's a lot about these storms that had not really been understood. There were some elements of it, that some core aspects that we knew something like this was going on, but the nature of it and the details of it had not really been revealed until we started working on it around 2005. Since the Sphero effort has been going on, How has that forecasting skill improved? Well, first of all, we had to figure out how to measure them and how to track them and how to uh, evaluate the forecast skill. And that work took place between about 2005 and 2013. When I came from NOAA to start this center at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, one of the key things we wanted to do was pursue this atmospheric river topic in the context of improving, potentially expanding reservoir operations flexibility. And that's when Carrie and I got together. Since then, we've been able to really pour the coals to it and discover more about how these storms form, how they're structured, how to measure them, how they're represented in weather models, how to improve the weather models, how to improve the observations that feed the models, and how to formulate the displays of the forecasts in ways that intuitively and concisely illustrate 
whether or not there's an AR coming, if so, how strong it's going to be, and some information about the uncertainty in the forecast. To explain you know, for the listeners why this matters for water management is when you talk about this storm that has that much water, if you're making a decision on whether I, how much can I hold in my reservoir, this is the kind of storm that can flood a reservoir. So you need to know, you know when it's going to come, that you've got to lower it before the storm comes of this magnitude. You know, a difference of 100 miles can make a difference between a drought and a flood. Is that kind of why it was so critical to have more precise information about these? Yeah. The position and intensity and duration of an atmospheric river in terms of over a given watershed really determines the amount of precipitation and ultimately the inflow into the reservoir. So the details of an atmospheric river forecast are really important to get the watershed right, to get the intensity, the duration, and the strength of the water vapor flux in it. It turns out that historically, uh, it's been hard to measure these things until uh, newer methods have come along. And frankly, the forecast prior to all this work, when the dams were built, you know, it was wise to not consider forecasts in reservoir operations because the precipitation forecasts are super difficult to mm-hmm. get right. They are one of the toughest things in meteorology to do well. Mm-hmm. One thing we've done in this Fira work is to really put a laser focus on the type of storm that produces the extreme precipitation in the region of the West uh, where these reservoirs are being looked at. And it turns out by examining the forecast of the storm and predicting the storm better, we're better able to predict the precipitation. Another way to say that is if you want to predict extreme precipitation and runoff in the West, you've got to be able to predict the storms that produce that precipitation. Yeah, And we have brought through FIRO a much deeper focus on atmospheric rivers as the storms that do the lion's share of that water supply delivery and cause floods. You mentioned the Hurricane Hunter earlier. Has that been a big part of this effort is using Hurricane Hunters during the quote-unquote off-season when they're not measuring hurricanes off the Gulf and applying them to measure these atmospheric rivers as they're forming out in the ocean? One of the challenges in atmospheric river prediction is that on the West Coast, as they form up over the Pacific Ocean, where we have relatively less data in the weather business than we'd like to compared to overland, uh, we have satellite data, which is super helpful. We have ocean surface data, which is very helpful. But neither of those really quantify precisely the conditions of an atmospheric river offshore. Aircraft, in particular weather reconnaissance aircraft that are often normally used for hurricanes, we have repurposed or added an additional mission to measure ARs offshore. And if you think of it in the most fundamental sense, if you want to predict where a car is going to be, you know, in, a, in a, an hour or a minute or something, you've got to start by knowing exactly where it is <laughs> yeah. and how, how fast it's going to be going. So uh, that's more or less what we're doing with atmospheric river airborne reconnaissance, known as AR recon. We're going out and make sure we know precisely where the AR is, how strong it is, and conditions around it that are going to influence its evolution. One more question related to the forecasting and we'll talk later on in the show about efforts to expand. You know, right now, FIRO has, has been done a lot in California. I know some Washington State out west. As we look at efforts to expand, possibly nationwide, how can better understanding atmospheric rivers also improve weather forecasting across the United States? Well, there's a couple of things there. It's a really good question. First of all, as atmospheric rivers are part of the cause of major flooding in other parts of the country as well, including the, mid, uh, the Great Plains, the Southeast, and New England. For example, a big flood in Tennessee in 2010 
was clearly fueled by an extreme atmospheric river coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. We also know, for example, it's the Snowmageddon storm in the weather business. There was a storm called Snowmageddon yeah, I remember that. about 2010 as well, somewhere in that time frame. And it was fueled by an AR that wrapped up over uh, out of the Gulf of Mexico, over Florida, and then curled back into the mid-Atlantic states. So knowing more about atmospheric rivers is going to help predict those storms better. But there's another less direct aspect by focusing on the atmospheric river forecast problem, we have moved the needle on the, the skill in extreme precipitation forecasting. And in the weather business, improvements in that parameter have been very hard to come by. So the paradigm of focusing on let's analyze and improve the forecast of the storm that's producing the precip, not just try to look at the precipitation coming out of the models, but actually look at the structure of the storms that are producing the heavy precip, how they're stalling or how they're changing in a given event. That's really, I think, going to be a formula for success for the rest of the country, and it will be built upon our paradigm we've developed for FIRO studies in the Western U.S. Carrie, how did FIRO get started, and how did Arctic become involved with this effort? Let me just, before I, I get into the answer that, I think it's pretty clear why Erdic has partnered with the Center for Western Weather, Water Extremes and Dr. Marty Ralph. I mean, he's clearly one of the world's leading experts on this phenomenon that is, of course, driving the really question about water supply and, and flood damages in the West, um, but also, as he pointed out, across the country. And, and all water managers across the country are benefiting from the fact that this improvement in forecast skill, as Marty has indicated, has really moved the needle. And so that's helping everybody. But how we got involved and how it got started, you know, we sometimes have a saying here within the core and certainly within Erdic that nothing focuses congressional attention like a disaster, right? We sometimes see these large up spikes in funding and research dedicated to research after major disasters, mm-hmm. after Katrina, after Harvey, after uh, Sandy and the like. And so from 2012 to 2015 was the driest three-year period on record in California history. That focused the need for looking at trying to find a better balance between flood risk management and water supply. Mm-hmm. Now, the Corps of Engineers has numerous dams in the West. The ones that the Corps owns and operates are built for flood risk management purposes. That's our mission as an a- one right. of our missions as an agency. And so, while they also are used for water supply, the Corps' perspective is the flood risk management aspects. Well, since they've been built and they were very carefully studied, their water control manuals that govern how they operate, those were set up in such a way that they've actually been doing a remarkable job in terms of the flood risk management aspects. But it's the 21st century. We're dealing with climate change and some increased number of extremes, extreme events. That's extremes in both ways, right? Extreme flooding, but also extreme drought. And that has highlighted the need to be able to have this existing infrastructure for these water resources work harder for us. In other words, be able to address this issue. And so in 2015, Congress provided some extra funding to the Corps with the express intent to have us see if with increased attention to atmospheric rivers, could we find a better balance between flood risk management and water supply. Now, of course, that required us, the Corps, to go externally to find that a partner to be able to study that meteorology mm-hmm. aspects. And of course, we went to the place that has the, the world's leading expert on atmospheric yeah. rivers to spearhead that research. But then that also has the component for the core side of it is, is that, okay, so if we had a better forecast, what could we do? And so that began the process of figuring out how the core, from its perspective, can better incorporate or safely and effectively incorporate forecast information into water management practice. Now, it also helped that in May of 2016, the Corps of Engineers 
updated a engineer regulation that governs water control management for the Corps to add in a key sentence that said that forecasted conditions can now be used for planning future operations. That's the first time that phrase, that forecasted conditions, can be used officially in water Mm -hmm. management. And so anything official in terms of how a reservoir is going to be operated is governed by what's called the water control manual. And so if you're going to officially incorporate forecast information into there, it has to make its way into the water control manual. And so the process of how we update those water control manuals in such a way that they can safely and effectively incorporate forecasting Mm -hmm. in that operations is what the FIRO effort is about. I would think that to a lot of people, it's not obvious that there would be a flood problem at all in the West. I mean, if you look at the news, you see the West is running out of water. What would you say to people that are confused about why there is a need for flood control in an area that is consistently experiencing a water shortage? Sure. We tend to hear about the extremes and, of course, Mm -hmm. the extremes right now. And I mentioned already the 2012 to 2015 was the driest three-year period on record in California. That was followed in 2017 by the wettest year on record in Northern California. Hmm. But then it was, that of course has now been followed by another extremely dry period again. If anything, what we're seeing in our current age of climate change and, and variability in the atmosphere and the way that that translates into water management issues is is that we're seeing increased frequency of the extremes, that we see these uh, intense and prolonged droughts, but they're broken up by very intense rainfall. And I'll add in another dimension to here, and I know you've had an earlier podcast on the uh, work that's being done here within Erdic with regard to post-wildfire hydrology, mm-hmm. increased prevalence of wildfires, which you know tend to be associated with droughts right. as well. That also exacerbates the flooding problem, because if you get an atmospheric river, which could generally be a beneficial thing in terms of providing rainfall that would fill up the reservoir on that, but if it happens to hit a watershed where there's been a recent wildfire, the runoff behavior completely no changes. No trees, and it can, no vegetation. Right, and it becomes now a, actually, instead of being a beneficial thing, it can actually be a very damaging and dangerous flooding condition. Sure. Talking, Carrie, about Erdic's role in this, and you mentioned the change in USA's policy to allow weather forecasts to be used in water management. I've seen a quote from you saying that they allowed it, but what had to happen next is define right. how do you use that information. Yes, that's correct. The change in policy just says that you can do that. Sure. It doesn't define the how. And so that's precisely what FIRO is about, is, is defining the how and how to do that safely, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, the flood risk management is still going to be the primary concern for the Corps of Engineers. That's our, our mission from Congress. You know, life safety is always going to be paramount. Right. But we now know, as, as, as Marty indicated, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when many of these water control manuals were written, because that's when the dams were built, forecasting skill then was not what it is today. And because of today's current skill in forecasting, we have to look at every reservoir individually. And the initial pilot where we did Lake Mendocino, it's on the Russian River, it's in north of San Francisco, about, so, about 100 miles or so. We figured out that we need about three to five days of forecast lead time. And that would be enough time to be able to evacuate any extra stored water that we might have there. Mm -hmm. And with three to five days of forecast lead time, we'd be able to safely let that get all the way out of the system, past the downstream most uh, flood-prone point, and uh, safely out to sea. And so with a solid forecast at that lead time, then we can store at 10, 20% extra in the reservoir and be able to be comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of this effort is built on partnerships. There are so many local and state and federal agencies involved. That's one of the strengths of this. And obviously, you know, having each of you talk about this topic shows one of the strong partnerships is ERDIC and the Center for Western Weather Extremes. Y'all both, Marty and Carrie, talk about those partnerships and the strength of that in the FIRO effort. First, let me just say that it's been remarkable to me how well the Corps of Engineer Districts, who of course are the ones who own and operate these reservoirs that the Corps mm-hmm. has responsibility for, they already have, by and large, very good working relationships with their partner agencies, whether that's the state of California, the Department of Water Resources, if, if we're talking about a California dam, it may be also the local water agencies. Mm-hmm. They have very good working relationships with them already. And so we're able to build on that collaborative relationship but we've also taken a new take on it, and that is is that we bring researchers, we represent, of course, the research right. side of it, and Marty is, as well as a, um, with his center there, but then we worked very closely together with the actual operations folks, right, the water managers, and bring them to the table as well. And so it's not a research effort where we're going to do things from the research side and try and figure out the way that they should be operating. Mm-hmm. We want them at the table to help us decide from the very beginning what are the parameters that we need to be aware of when we're talking about incorporating forecasts into the operations of that reservoir on a day-to-day basis. They know what the limitations are. They know what pieces of data that they tend to look at. Mm-hmm. Then we can talk with them about potentially new pieces of data. For example, increased monitoring stations in the watershed so that we can know uh, what the soil moisture content is and have a better understanding that if we get a rainfall and it's maybe October and it's long, hot, dry summer, the the soil is very dry. Even if you get a large rainfall, which is what actually they had this past October, a very strong atmospheric river hit in many parts of California, but not much of it ended up in the reservoirs because most of it just went into the ground and, Mm -hmm. you know, recharged the groundwater, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So working together with the water managers at these reservoirs, they're able to give us their perspective on what the operational constraints are, but then we're also able to provide them the new understanding about how tools might be used, how to understand ensemble forecasts rather than just a, you know, deterministic, it's going to rain, you know, Mm 3.6 inches or whatever, but have them understand the, the ranges of forecasting tools and that. Sometimes in the research realm, we talk about the challenge of going from research to operations. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's maybe a a gulf to be overcome there, getting, you know, a tool that we've developed on the research side over to the operational team. We don't use that terminology with FIRO. We actually talk about a research and operations partnership because they are partners at the table when we are designing the research effort, when we're setting up the work plan for how we're going to study FIRO viability. And we use that term very carefully. Mm -hmm. Is FIRO viable at a particular reservoir? They're sitting with us at the table, they being the operations side, the water managers, as well as also the regulatory aspects too, because most of these reservoirs have a very strong regulatory component, whether it's spawning fish or there might be other ecological factors that need to be considered Mm -hmm. into how that reservoir is operated. Yeah, it's a real strength of Firo. I think it's one of the foundational reasons it's having success is we've found a way to bring people together from different roles and responsibilities and, and disciplines from water resource engineering to hydrology to meteorology to climate to biology, even economics. Who are some of the other key partners that, that you want to be sure to highlight? So it was the Corps and Sonoma Water who together jointly worked together on mm-hmm. the operation of Lake Mendocino, which was that initial pilot. But then then we also wanted to make sure we had the perspectives from 
other federal state groups. So we had the, the State Department of uh, Water Resources were, was represented through the state climatologist, a gentleman named Mike Anderson. Mm-hmm. We also had the perspectives of we wanted to incorporate the Bureau of Reclamation. They operate many reservoirs in the West for water supply. So we had head of research from the uh, Bureau of Reclamation, uh, Levi Brecky, and then we also included the research side of NOAA as well from the Office of Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, the director of the physical sciences division there, Noah uh, Robin Webb. Um, we also included uh, a gentleman who at the time was working for the USGS as well, uh, Mike Dettinger, who's also a highly respected uh, researcher in the realm of precipitation variability within California and, and, and the West. We had research from, from NOAA, research from USGS, research from Bureau of Reclamation, as well as then, of course, Erdic, wow. um, you know, myself from the Corps of Engineers. And then we also had the operational side of NOAA, the River, uh, California-Nevada River Forecast Center. So the operationally, locally, was the chief engineer from Sonoma Water. Mm-hmm. And then because of the regulatory side, there's a biological opinion on releases from Lake Mendocino. And so we wanted to ensure we had a representation from the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is also, as it turns out, a part of NOAA. And then, of course, the chief operations individual from the San Francisco district from the Corps of Engineers, mm-hmm. right? So from the Corps, we had research through Erdic, myself, and then the uh, operational side from the Corps, from the water management chief within the San Francisco district, a gentleman named Mike Dillabaugh. I'd like to add and emphasize the local water agencies, and they're some very innovative uh, leadership in Sonoma Water Agency, Orange County Water District, Yuba Water Agency, the California Department of Water Resources, the California State Water Project, Tacoma Water Agency, all have been really key in being part of this in a deep way. One of the things that FIRO has done, it's been a catalyst for the growth of our center here for Western weather and water extremes in a way that has integrated this cross-disciplinary sort of scope of effort with, you know, the major hydrologic expertise at Erdic uh, in terms of research. Uh, we complement that with some hydrologic expertise here, but deep knowledge and experience with meteorology and with climate and also some economics and some hydrology now. And we have now the capacity to carry out feral viability assessments in a variety of circumstances across the West. And we are building the foundation to do that across the country for other storm types as well. It's a relatively unusual combination of talented people, tools, including co-leadership of the AR recon effort, supercomputing capacity, our own weather model, that we can work with uh, the Corps of Engineers to evaluate feral viability across a range of conditions uh, with confidence that we've got the deep knowledge to bring to bear. Carrie, FIRO is entering its third phase. What did you do during the first two phases and what's next? So the phase one was essentially a, a bit of a building the airplane while we were flying it. Uh, we had to figure out how to assess viability. And so we took our time to carefully form the steering committee that we've talked about and uh, get everyone's buy-in on that. And so phase one focused on just figuring out how to do FIRO, how to assess FIRO viability at a particular reservoir. And mm-hmm. the, the initial pilot for that was Lake Mendocino, as we've discussed, figuring out how to do it and to carry it all the way through to what we call a preliminary viability assessment, where we tested a whole range of different potential scenarios, including some that 
we would never really put into practice, but we, we, we wanted to explore what the limits were and to kind of find the boundaries of what was possible, what mm-hmm. was supported by the science, what were the limitations of the operating constraints at the reservoir, also what were the limitations of the ecological constraints as well. So we explored all of that space, and then from that we distilled it down to a, a set of really truly potentially viable scenarios. And so we conducted what we call a final viability assessment, where we looked at those in great detail and did all the kinds of studies that would be required to be able to update a water control manual, mm-hmm. right? Is anytime you're proposing a new operational scenario at a reservoir, they have to be tested to, against the, you know, the range of storms that we've seen, but our potential could happen there. Mm-hmm. And just to reassure ourselves that that scenario is not going to cause a condition that would be beyond what we would consider safe. Yeah. Phase two was where we took that, what we had learned from building that process, that viability assessment process, and take it to other reservoirs, as Marty indicated, with different hydrologic conditions, different sizes. Uh, You know, Lake Mendocino is a fairly small reservoir. It's about 100,000 acre feet or so. Now we're taking it to some that are 10 times and more than that. Actually, some of the largest reservoirs in California and applying those in different conditions. Now, Lake Mendocino doesn't experience any snowmelt in, in you know, the watershed above the lake. Doesn't, mm-hmm. There's not really any snowpack. And so snowmelt's not an issue. Well, in the foothills of the Sierras, with these very large reservoirs, that's a major driving factor. Lake Mendocino is a fairly uh, rural area. We have one of our additional pilots is Prado Dam, which is on the Santa Ana in Southern California, right in the heart of, of Orange County yeah. and, and Riverside County. In fact, Prado Dam experiences a problem. If it were to fail, Disneyland gets wiped out. So, you know, super high uh, sure. consequences <laughs> there. You know, looking at a variety of watershed conditions, urban versus rural, yeah. uh, snowmelt versus rain-dominated, uh, lots of different, you know, in range of sizes. And so the phase two was looking at these additional sites. And so we had three more pilots including one up in the Pacific Northwest that was talked about. It's on the Green River. It's a Howard Hansen Dam upstream of Seattle. And so their water supply is not really a major driving factor. It's actually now about ecological benefits for the timing of releases such that it can provide better spawning habitat for salmon and, and sure. the like. So Firo really can, it's not just a water supply okay. improvement effort. It's providing benefits or opportunities to maximize the benefits for all of the different purposes for a reservoir. And then from those, the lessons learned from the first pilot as well as the additional three, that looking at developing from that a screening process, that we can use that screening process to give kind of a very first level, initial screening level assessment of where are dams across the United States that might be good candidates for more in-depth fuel viability assessments. And so that screening process, we're in the process right now of developing that such that we can test that on a, a series of dams. We're testing right now on all 74 dams within the South Pacific Division's right. area of responsibility. Wow. So that includes California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and portions of Colorado. Testing it on all those dams there to develop that process. And then the rollout in phase three would have been then to take that process and apply that nationwide to the core's portfolio of dams, which is over 700. So when you look at possibly taking FIRO on a national scale, what are some of the unique challenges? What are the characteristics that need to be considered to determine where it can be viable and where it isn't a good fit? That's actually, a, you know, we could probably do an entire podcast hey, just sure. on that alone, because there's a long list of things. And 
we have come to appreciate and understand that every watershed, every dam is different. They're all unique, even if they're in you know adjacent watersheds to each other, very close geographically. They may have very different characteristics in terms of you know what could work at one may not work at another just mm-hmm. because of how the dam was built and whatever the other factors might be. And there are meteorological differences as well, of course, even just in California, right? From Northern California, where Lake Mendocino, the initial pilot is, to Prado Dam in Southern California, it's a very different um, they're both atmospheric river driven. Mm-hmm. Those are the major causes of flooding in those areas. And so those are the storms to be concerned about, but they behave differently from the north to the south. Yeah. And then, of course, the Pacific Northwest is, again, a very different hydrologic regime. Again, atmospheric rivers are the cause of their major floods there, but it's a different hydrologic regime than what you've got in mm-hmm. California. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that aspect of it, but then also understanding what are the different conditions in terms of downstream from in the west your most of the dams are kind of on the, if you will, the, the western side of the major mountain ranges, right? The Sierra Nevadas or the Cascades in the northwest. And so from there to the ocean isn't terribly long in terms of distance. Yeah. And so these, they tend to be steep rivers, right? So they, they move fairly rapidly. Whereas if you get onto the other side of the continental divide, now we have a different, very different conditions. And so if you're in Kansas, let's say, or in Dallas, Texas, the speed that the rivers flow at is lower because the elevation difference isn't as great. Um, yeah. And so over much longer periods of time. And so the needed lead forecast time in those areas is going to be different than it is in the West. And it's mostly going to be longer, sure. which creates a harder challenge in terms of the forecasting side of things. And uh, you also have different conditions, different constraints about if you're talking about, say, the Trinity River in the Dallas area, well, that eventually ends up flowing down through Houston, a major population center. So you, you, know, you have to make sure that whatever we're releasing upstream isn't going to cause a problem downstream where you might end up having a tropical storm you know, pop up in, within a very short period of time yeah. and cause a flooding condition there. So you know, those are some of the challenges. And again, as we move to parts of the country where convective summer systems can produce tremendous amounts of rainfall, mm-hmm. that adds another factor into the equation that, that has to be dealt with. And then into the Northeast, where interestingly enough, the Northeast, compared to California, California has the best forecasting skill uh, in terms of being able to predict strong mm-hmm. and, and intense storms. The Northeast is actually number two. Huh. And so there's good potential there, it's cer- certainly at certain times of the year to try and apply FIRO principles there. But as we move to that, I'm sure there will be unique uh, regional factors that will come into play. And we'll probably have to adjust that screening process as we move from region to region to factor in some of those regional factors. Sure. I know General Spellman, commanding general for the Corps of Engineers, has expressed interest in increasing the scale. How quickly do you have the capacity to expand? Well, that's a great question. We've actually been addressing some issues. General Spellman has actually asked some very pointed questions on that here within the past couple of weeks, potentially because of the dire conditions on the Colorado River and the the Colorado Basin and drought in the West in general. And so we've actually had to take a serious look at how quickly can we go. Again, it's going to depend upon the region. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, thankfully, we've been working on FIRO in the West for several years now. And so those districts out there, the San Francisco, Sacramento, Los Angeles, and Albuquerque districts now, have gotten a lot of experience with FIRO. And so they think they can probably handle between 15 to 20 uh, water control manual updates at a time. 
that would require them to pretty much drop everything else, though. Yeah, so yeah, it would sure. depend upon the prioritization of that. But uh, again, in, in response to you know national emergencies, if this is a, deemed a priority, then the water managers in that area have taken a solid look at how quickly that could be done. Now, that's the water management side. The research side, of course, we would uh, need to be able to support that as well mm-hmm. and, and increase our capacity here. It really, to me, it looks like that we would tend to build for the core is a cadre of FIRO capacity within the districts and divisions, and that would be supported by the researchers here at URTIC to help teach them how to conduct a FIRO viability assessment and then be able to apply that in their regions. Marty, can you tackle that also? It's a question of nationwide expansion. What you see as some of the challenges, what you see as some of the areas that, that are maybe most ripe for it, how quickly it can be done and so forth. I sort of want to start with a little bit of the phase one, two, and three thing from a research standpoint. Yeah. I think Kerry gave a great summary from a operations and water management perspective, but there's been a very systematic approach in phase one to phase two and what we're envisioning for phase three. Uh, on the research side to better understand and predict these storms that produce extreme precip. So with phase one, the focus on Lake Mendocino really allowed us to firm up that atmospheric rivers are the storm type that matters. We also learned what the lead times were that were needed. As Kerry mentioned earlier, three to five days lead time would be enough to enable a viability of FIRO at Lake Mendocino. In addition, we started developing some of the tools that could be used to anticipate whether there's an AR coming, and if so, with what confidence. So phase one really allowed us to lay the foundation for what then in phase two, we expanded upon by developing AR recon and went from a pilot study to now an operational effort each winter that operationally improves the forecast of ARs on the West Coast, with one outcome being better information for reservoir operations. Another was we started building a specialized atmospheric river-focused model for Western U.S. in the winter. And then also we developed uh, machine learning approaches and artificial intelligence approaches to prediction. All of these are tending to move the needle on precipitation forecast skill for the West Coast in particular. Now for phase three, the challenge expands because, as I mentioned earlier, we have not only atmospheric rivers as the major storm type in the West Coast and a contributor in the rest of the country, but we also have mesoscale convective systems, which are a fancy way to say a big group of thunderstorms, classic, difficult to predict thing in meteorology, uh, maybe much less lead time than atmospheric rivers, and also tropical storms and hurricanes where the track has to be super precise to get the precip right. So we're going to be in phase three pursuing you know, the approaches that we've developed in phases one and two uh, on the meteorology side to uh, move forward with phase three on an additional set of phenomena that uh, really drive the extreme precipitation that matters for reservoir operations. Yeah. If you imagine in terms of this, you know, rapid evaluation and implementation of FIRO viability assessment to help deal with Western drought, imagine there's something on the order of 200, 300 reservoirs that might be in play. Let's say 200 to be conservative that the core is important in. Clearly from a FIRO standpoint, ones that have very long travel times from where the dam is to where damage can be done means the forecast lead times are gonna be longer and that's gonna make for greater challenges. There are going to be reservoirs for which FIRO is not viable Mm -hmm. today. How many of those are going to be the case? We really don't know. We're optimistic that a significant portion will be viable in the end, but we really don't know yet. 
So now realize that the viability assessment hinges on not only the character of the dam and how much water it can release, how fast, how much extra it would hold back after a storm, and how long the travel time is for that water once it's released to get past harm's way, but also the forecast skill relative to that time scale. So the more we can improve on the forecast skill, the more viability we will find. And that I would call FIRO 1.0. FIRO 2.0 is saying for a reservoir that we already know it's viable initially, we could potentially increase the flexibility for reservoir operations on that system by improving the forecast skill. For example, on Lake Mendocino, we have the calculation that 10,000 acre feet essentially uh, is the amount to be kept potentially after a storm if there's no other storm on the horizon in the next few days. And that 10,000 acre feet calculation includes that it takes one day with that reservoir, the way it's built, to release 5,000 acre feet takes a day. Mm -hmm. Now imagine we add a a day of lead time to the forecast skill. What that could mean is there's an extra 5,000 acre feet could be kept in the reservoir safely uh, because we know we'll know farther ahead whether an AR is coming. There'll be more time for that water to be released and get out of harm's way. So FIRO 2.0 is the concept that for systems where FIRO is already viable, the amount of flexibility could be increased by further improvement in forecast skill. So that is a major challenge in meteorology, as I mentioned earlier. We've figured out some very promising approaches that are already showing results and really pouring the coals to that over the next few years to help the West and help the Corps of Engineers uh, evaluate the viability for more reservoirs in the West. Yeah, and that concept of FIRO 2.0 Part of the challenge that we have and, and you know, what Erdic is doing and in this and, and part of where our capabilities and expertise is coming into this is that we're trying to figure out how do we update a water control manual today to be able to potentially incorporate the future improvement in forecast skill that might come. Sure, sure. So we don't have to update that water control manual now and then also have to do it you know, in a short period of time later. It's an expensive process. It's a lengthy process to update a water control manual because of all the regulatory and other factors that have to come into play. And that's not going to change. So what we're trying to do now is is to figure out a way so that when we build in that flexibility, so that as that forecast skill continues to improve, because we're going to continue investing in it, thankfully, as we've already seen the benefits of that, that we're able to actually incorporate that into the language that's written into the water control manual updates that we're doing right now so that we don't have to update that water control manual yeah. again later. More of a living manual. Sort of exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Carrie, how does FIRO benefit from Erdic's unique expertise, capabilities, cross-disciplinary research, and so forth? Well, that issue there of building that flexibility into the future, right? Because Erdic, of course, we're always trying to look ahead, right, mm-hmm. to solve not just today's problems, but also figure out how to do that for today and tomorrow and, and beyond. And so that's part of it, I think. And also the fact that this is a research question, and fundamentally, mm-hmm. right, that, you know, the districts are very used to dealing with how they do it today and the problems of today. And so coming in with a different perspective where we're able to, instead of say, hey, here's how we're going to change the operations, to say, let's explore a whole range of possible operating scenarios. Let's look at things from you know, many different perspectives to try and, and, you know, and incorporate those perspectives by bringing together different collaborators and stakeholders who have an interest in what's happening at that reservoir, get their perspectives from the very beginning. So that whole research and operations partnership that we've talked about, that's a concept that's not 
uh, something that districts are used to working in. And so having those types of collaborative frameworks from which to be able to design the work plans for these viability assessments and be able to then assess a wide range of possible scenarios, distill that down to a set of realistic scenarios that could be implemented, and then from that, coming up with a suggested best effort going Mm -hmm. forward. And then at that point, the research effort doesn't end, but it's where the research-led part of the effort does end, and it's now becomes the water control manual update process, which is going to be led, of course, by the the water managers in the various districts, because that's their process. But there's still a role for research to play in that, in that we help inform them looking at these potential scenarios and how to write that water control manual in such a way that it incorporates potential improvements in forecast skill, as well as the improvements in hydrologic modeling and the observations that are done within the watersheds. One of our pilots right now we're conducting where the, uh, it's actually a two-dam system, so Lake Oroville and New Bullard's Bar. Those water control manual updates are actually underway while we're doing the feral viability assessment okay. process. And so there's some efficiencies that we're gaining in that scenario there where we're assessing feral viability and updating the water control manual at the same time. Again, that's never been done before. And so there's a part of the power of the research that we have in that scenario. We're able to inform that process and help speed up that process of potentially updating water control manuals. You know, that also gets to the question earlier about how quickly could we go in the future. It may not work in every situation to be able to do those simultaneously, but we're certainly uh, demonstrating some advantages to doing that now. Sure. Look into the future, and we've talked about FIRA 2.0 and so forth. What do you all see? What does the future hold? Chris, the future is bright when it comes to forecast improvements for extreme precipitation. Despite the fact it's been one of the toughest things to make progress on in meteorology, I think we now, partly through FIRO, have figured out a bit of a formula about how to approach it. It's hard work. There's no silver bullet. It's Mm -hmm. not just a better model or better observations or better decision support tools or machine learning. There's no silver bullet. It's all of the above. And forecast skill for extreme precip is really pretty low to start with. So we got a lot of room to uh, improve upon. I think the prospects are good over sort of the timescale of a decade to really make major progress in that direction realize that there's a report out about forecast skill and extreme precipitation that has shown essentially that skill has stalled over the last 20 years. Hmm. So uh, we are starting a whole new approach to how to make a difference there. And I'm optimistic that we'll move the needle. And I'll add that FIRO in the West has really been a catalyst for this innovation in precipitation forecast skill improvement partly by looking at the storms specifically that are producing the precipitation and how do we better predict the key elements of those storms is one of the approaches that shows so much promise. Sure. And Chris, I'll add on to that, that from the water management perspective, what does the you know, the next generation of water management, this truly is an inflection point, a, a paradigm shift in water management. You know, we had that update to the, the engineer regulation back in May mm-hmm. that just opened the door for being able to officially incorporate forecasts in there. I do need to say that I've learned through my years of interfacing with the water management community, they've been looking at forecasts for a long time. Mm-hmm. They've seen the skill that is there and that they know that those forecasts are reliable. And so they haven't been blind to that. Water managers around the core have been doing that for quite some time. 
but it's not beneficially in the regulations. Or it's not beneficially in those water control manuals. Sure. And so in some respects, they're operating a little bit on their own or a little bit outside the lines of what the regulations said they could do. Mm-hmm. So now that regulation's been changed, but the regulation change did say that it's got to be in the water control manual, right? That's still the Bible or the rules for how that particular reservoir needs to be operated. And so FIRO is, in many ways, giving water managers the flexibility that they either already wanted to be using or really, in some ways, already were, mm-hmm. but do so in a thorough fashion so that we can fully study that and figure out how to do that. And so the next generation is really also because, again, this concept of updating the water control manual in such a way that we build in that flexibility so that as forecast skill continues to improve, that there's a way for that flexibility is built into the the water control manual itself that allows the operators to increase the amount of space that they have to work with. We've kind of developed a bit of a catchphrase, if you will, within the FIRO effort that the famous phrase that time is money. Well, with FIRO, forecast lead time is water. The more forecast lead time that we can uh, get out of the forecasts by improving that skill and and having that understanding of what's happening in the watershed and what the conditions on the ground are, that gives the water managers more time. And if they have more time, then they can feel more comfortable holding water that they don't need to release until they see something coming. And I want to point out also that, you know, when we initially set out with this effort, the idea was is that we wanted to see if we couldn't improve water supply reliability while not making it worse from a flood risk management perspective, Mm -hmm. right? So like do no harm, but see if we could improve but benefit on the the other side of the equation. But we came to understand that actually that was a little bit short-sighted of a goal. The larger goal should be to see if we could improve them both. Sure. And in fact, also improve the ecological benefits. And that's what we've come to understand is is that it's not a zero-sum game, that if you improve one, the other one gets worse. That's not true. By using forecast information and increasing that lead time where we have reliable forecasts, that we can actually see improvements both in the water supply side, of course, but also the ecological benefits and on the flood risk management side. Because as we see large storms coming, those water managers can get ahead of it by actually pre-releasing or releasing ahead of a large storm to give themselves more capacity to be able to handle that and to improve things. As we look ahead in climate change and seeing this increased frequency of these extremes, both on the drought side as well as the flood side, that increased capacity could mean the difference in providing that, you know, an improved level of protection, getting more out of that reservoir, that dam, than was originally even intended when it was built. Carrie Morty, thank you for being with us today and for talking about this very important topic. Sure, Megan, Chris, it's been a pleasure to be able to talk with you both. Thank you both. And it's a real honor to work with uh, the Army Corps of Engineers and try to bring uh, improvements to forecast to support you know, water supply reliability and flood risk management enhancement in the West and across the country. FIRO gives water managers the flexibility to use next generation weather and stream flow predictions to make better decisions rather than relying on manuals that were developed when forecasting skills were much more rudimentary. This enables better precision in balancing water supply, flood management, and environmental concerns and makes us more resilient to the extremes of changing climates. The program has demonstrated success during real-world pilots in western regions, providing an increase of up to 15 to 20 percent in water availability without the need for any new construction. Its benefits will continue to grow as forecasting skill improves and researchers study how FIRO can be applied more broadly across the nation. The Power of Erdic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. 
follow Erdic on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Erdic podcast in all major podcast players. Please subscribe and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Visit powerofurticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofurticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all we have time for today. We'll see you next time.